Thank you, Howard. That's not exactly all true. Actually, Howard called me a couple months ago and said, Ron, do you believe in freedom of speech? And I said, I do. I believe in free speech. He said, well, would you come and give one? And so I, that's why I'm here. Yeah, I'm an old baseball player, catcher. Um, you know, I, I like to say that prepared me for life because everybody fails in life. Baseball is a game of failure, and you have to learn to play through failure. And so I'm, I'm glad to be a, an ex guy who wore the tools of ignorance. Actually, Howard couldn't find a decent preacher in the Presbyterian Church, so he asked me to come. And I really am delighted to be here. I love coming back to First Pres. I bring you greetings from San Antonio. I finished out, actually, as the senior pastor at First Pres there. Uh, then I did an interim at a church in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia for six months, then a Christ of the Hills Pres in Bernie, Texas for 14 months. Then last September, I finally... I call it rewired, not retired. And so this is my first sermon in 40 years after rewiring. And so I hope I can still do it. But anyways, um, and I'm excited about this for Amarillo Conference. This is just a great thing. Uh, what Howard and these pastors are doing in your city is getting national recognition. And other cities, pastors are copying them. Let's get together and do things together. And that really honors Christ. And I just got to say, you've got a great pastoral staff, and Howard, and Murray, and Kim, and um, honor them, pray for them, take care of them. It's easy to think, well, they look like they're just doing great. But it's really hard to be a pastor in the 21st century. Really, really hard if you're committed to being a biblically faithful pastor. The culture now is turned against the church, at least biblical churches, and pastors today are getting it not just from outside the church, but from within their churches as well. The pressure by the culture to conform is very great. So pray for these guys, honor them, drop them a note every once in a while and just say, I'm just glad you're, you're my pastor. Uh, that'll mean a lot to them. Well, supposedly Socrates said, uh, know thyself. He probably didn't. He probably got it from somewhere else. But we do know that Aristotle said, knowing yourself is the beginning of wisdom. And John Calvin would say to Socrates and Aristotle, guess what? You can't know yourself until you first know God. Then the apostle Paul would step in and say, that's right, John. But you can't know God outside of a personal encounter with God's son, the living Lord Jesus Christ. That means that the most important question that you and I will ever ask in our lives is this, who is Jesus? We're going to hear the Pharisees ask that question in, in verse 25 of our text this morning. Um, but that's an important question. We've got to answer it. And how you and I answer that question has eternal consequences. That's why this sermon series that y'all are doing on the I am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John is so important. The Pharisees speculate about who Jesus is. But in this sermon series, you and I are going to hear Jesus explicitly, clearly, directly answer that question. Who is Jesus? Last week, you learned that he is the bread of life. 
This morning, he's going to reveal to you and me that he's the light of the world. But then in the second half of the text we're going to read, Jesus makes what I would say is the most audacious, perhaps even most preposterous claim that anyone has ever made any place, anytime, anywhere. Unless, of course, it's true. See what I mean. Turn with me in your Bibles and keep them open to John chapter 8. We're taking a look this morning at verses 12 through 30. But let's pray before we read. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds now to your word, that we might clearly understand it, that we might gratefully receive it, and that we might faithfully apply it to our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now hear God's word beginning to read at the 12th verse of John chapter chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from, or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Please pray with me again. And now, Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But as my words should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of the churches I served, I had an associate pastor who was 
born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. And he used to regale me with tales of how it was living in a place where for six months of the year, year, it was pitch black outside 24-7, and how depressing that got as he was growing up. You know, you and I need light to see where we're going. We need light for health. We need life, light to really live. The spectacular festival of the Jews back in the first century was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was spectacular because on the last night of the festival, you could witness the most high-tech light show known in the first century. What they would do the last day of the festival is they would construct four gigantic menorahs, candelabras. I mean, these things were 86 feet tall, fueled with hundreds and hundreds of gallons of oil. And on the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light these four menorahs and it would absolutely, astoundingly illuminate the entire city of Jerusalem. Now, of course, the light stood for something. It stood primarily for the Shekinah glory of Almighty God, but also symbolized the pillar of fire that we heard about in the Old Testament lesson, that pillar of fire where God led the people on Exodus out of Egyptian slavery, finally to the promised land back in Moses' day. And so Jesus' words in verse 12, I am the light of the world, are spoken on the tail end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that's a pretty grandiose claim to make. I am the light of the world. It might even border on blasphemy. And you might expect the Pharisees to have their blasphemy alarms go off and arrest him for being a blasphemer. But, but they don't. They just listen to him. Perhaps this is because they've heard Jesus make this claim before, and Jesus has never claimed this claim exclusively for himself. If you flip back in Matthew's gospel, the fifth chapter, 11th verse, Jesus says to his disciples, you are also the light of the world. Meaning if you're a follower of Christ, God's light ought to be reflected through your life to the world. So what about you and me? When people look at your life and mine, do they see us as the light of Christ or something else? That's just something to ponder here. Now, the Pharisees, they're not at this point so much interested in who Jesus is as they're interested in due process. Now, the past few months, we've heard a lot about due process, haven't we, with all the impeachment hearings and all that stuff. Hebrew law said, you can't make a claim about yourself without two witnesses backing it up. One of those can be yourself, but there's got to be two. So they immediately go after Jesus and say, you can't say this because you've only got one witness. It's just you making this claim. You need a second witness. Jesus says, you guys are ignorant. You don't know where I come from. You don't really know who I am. I've got a second witness. And they say, well, who is that? He says, my father. Well, the Pharisees know who Jesus' father is. They know that he's Joseph, the husband of Mary. And they also know that he's dead as a doornail. And so they say in verse 19, okay, 
produce your second witness, knowing that Jesus can't, because they know he's in the graveyard. But then Jesus says, no, it's my Father who sent me. Now, the Pharisees are clueless. They, they're not getting what Jesus said. Um, and if they did, they would arrest him. I have a hunch that some of the Pharisees were getting it. But still, they don't arrest Jesus. Why? Verse 20 is an easy verse just to skip over. Take a look at it. It, it just says, uh, they didn't arrest him for his hour not yet come. Thank you, Howard. I used to do this as an associate for him, too. Fix him up. Would you shine my shoes while you're down there? Okay. And so um, it says, his hour not yet come. My friends, that is a sovereignty of God verse. Never think that Jesus was a victim. Never think that Jesus was just an unfortunate guy that got caught up in the vortex of Jewish jealousy and Roman injustice. No, everything Jesus does throughout his life is following a scripted plan of salvation that God had penned before the foundation of the world. Why did they not arrest him? Because his hour had not yet come. But let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what are the implications of Jesus' claim that he's the light of the world. A few months ago, our youngest daughter, Emily, who lives in Dallas, she came down to visit us and she said, I'm going to get in, I'm going to drive down, I'll be there about noon on Tuesday. That's when we expected her. Unbeknownst to us, late Monday night, she decides to drive on down. She she gets to our house about 3 a.m., goes to her room. Well, I get up at 4 every morning and have my quiet time. Then at 5.30 a.m., I take my two dogs out for a walk. And to do so, I call the lights out in the house, and I cut through our den to the utility room where I put on my shoes and get their leashes. And I know that den in the dark. I don't need the lights on. I know how to go through it. And I'm going through it full blast, and I broke my toe. Because Emily brought her big lab down with her and set up his metal crate in the middle of where I cut through. And I'm running through him. Oh, man, I thought I knew my way through the darkness, but I didn't that day. I needed a light. You know, without Jesus Christ, you and I are just stumbling around in the dark. Jesus is the light of the world. Another way of putting that is he is the event in human history in the light of which all other events become intelligible. This world does not make sense outside of the illumination of Jesus Christ. I just tore a page out of the San Antonio Express news from the other day. This is a world stumbling around in darkness. Wells Fargo, a $3 billion scandal. Worker accused of sexual assault. Uh, Man charged with trafficking teenagers. Um, A whole bunch of murders in San Antonio. We shouldn't expect people to live their lives any differently than this because they are just stumbling around in the darkness. Without Christ, you can't figure out life. You know, when we figure out something, oftentimes we say, ah, the light went on. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, ah, the light goes on. Suddenly, everything else seems to begin to make sense in light 
of who he is. Now, hold on to your pew, because we're going to go into the second half of the text where Jesus makes this most audacious claim that I told you about. And um, first of all, he goes from preaching to meddling in verses 21 through 26, because he says to the Pharisees, you know, you all are going to die in your sins. And he says, where I'm going, you cannot go. Now, if you interviewed the Pharisees and said, y'all know where you're going after you die? They'd say, we sure do. We're going to heaven. And we don't need that guy, Jesus, to get there. Is that true? Our world today says there are many ways to heaven other than Jesus. That is a statement made by people wandering around in the dark. I'm not going to steal the thunder of you or Murray or Kim, whoever's preaching on John 14 when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But remember, this is not some visiting preacher from San Antonio making these claims. Jesus says, unless you figure out who I am, you're going to die in your sins. Let's stop here. I'm going to give you a little Hebrew and Greek grammar lesson. Go back to Exodus 3, the burning bush. God appears to Moses, says to Moses, Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, uh, okay, uh, who shall I say is sending me? And that's where God reveals for the very first time his name, supreme name, to Moses. There's a problem with his name. It's four Hebrew consonants with no vowel points under it. It's called the tetragrammaton, tetra-four-gramma letters. The tetragrammaton. We don't know how to pronounce. We usually say Yahweh. It's the unpronounceable word, the unrepeatable word to an Orthodox Jew. They will not say the name of God. So if they're reading Scripture out loud and they get to that, to the tetragrammaton, they substitute Adonai, which means Lord. You know the name Jehovah? That's a, a, a man-made word. Somebody took the vowel points under the word Adonai, slid them under the tetragrammaton, and it comes out Jehovah. We don't know how to pronounce the name, but I'll tell you that. Here's the grammar lesson. Yahweh is the first person singular of the verb to be. It means I am. So when God speaks to Moses, Moses says, who should I say is sending me? God says, I am. That's God's supreme name. Here we have Jesus in our text saying the Hebrew phrase, ego eimi. Well, that phrase is the first person singular of the verb to be. I am. No good Jew would mistake what Jesus is saying here when he says, unless you believe that in the English text, it says, I am he. Greek text doesn't say that. It just says, unless you believe, I am, ego me, you will die in your sins. Do you have any friends that say to you sometimes, hey, Jesus was a great guy. I believe Jesus was a wonderful moral teacher, but I don't believe he's God. In fact, they picked up this somewhere. 
He never, ever claims to be God in Scripture. That is absolutely not true. Take him right to this text. He claims to be God explicitly and clearly at least twice, possibly three times in this text when he says, ego and me. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this in his book, Mere Christianity, about Jesus' use of ego and me. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or uh, on the level with someone who claims he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. John Stott, in his classic Basic Christianity, says, if Jesus was not God in human flesh, Christianity is exploded. That's the most audacious claim anyone has ever made. Jesus saying, ego ami. He is clearly claiming to be the, se- the second, part, second person of the Holy Trinity. And what are the implications of that? Well, look what he says in verse 28. Again, he says, I am ego ami. But he says, you're never going to figure this out until you raise up the Son of Man or elevate or lift up the Son of Man. Jesus here is referring to his cross. He's foretelling the crucifixion here. You know, if Jesus was a mere mortal, then what you have on the cross is just a sad martyrdom of some poor soul who just was in the wrong place at the wrong time and maybe said some wrong things. But what if Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God in the flesh? What if Jesus is the God-man? What if Jesus really is ego me? I am. One with the Father. He says that in the text. On a mission from God. Then what happens on the cross makes all the difference in the world to you and me. It means that you and I will not die in our sins. Because on the cross... Jesus, the God-man, the ego of me in the flesh, does what you and I cannot do for ourselves. On the cross, he accomplishes that once-for-all, sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice that completely covers all of Howard's sin, my sin, and every person in the sanctuary. And anyone who turns to him and believes, ego of me, that he is the I am in the flesh. That makes all the difference in the world, folks, whether Jesus is ego of me or just a mortal. Look at verse 30. The Pharisees are paralyzed at this point, but others in the crowd aren't. It says, many believed in him. 
If the most important question in the world that you and I ever answer is, who is Jesus? The second most important question is, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And I'm not talking here about intellectual assent. Oh yeah, I believe the Apostles' Creed, so I guess I'm in. That's not what I'm talking about. Did you know that the most orthodox beings in the universe are demons? Theologically orthodox. James 2.19, you can look it up if you think I'm making this up. It says, even the demons believe. Demons do not sit around arguing about whether Jesus was born of a virgin. Demons do not debate each other over whether Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. They witnessed it all. Demons know that Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. So what's the difference between a demon and me? Sometimes not a whole lot. That's why we have this prayer of confession every week. But what's the difference between a demon and you and me? A demon does not surrender his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. A demon does not say, Lord, it may be stumblingly, but I'm going to try to make you the number one priority in my life. You're going to be my first love. A demon doesn't say, I love you, Lord. A demon doesn't turn and ask for forgiveness to Christ. A demon is not banking on Jesus and what he did on the cross to have anything to do with their eternal destiny. So as we end, my question to you is, do you believe he is who he says he is? It's a matter of eternal life and death. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.